Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for January 24th, 2022. Here's today's rundown. There's been a tug of war between the Biden administration and the U.S. Supreme Court over mandates. Following oral arguments, the court reinstated the CMS vaccine mandates. What's the latest news on the mandates and their impact on a wide range of health care providers? Attorney and physician Dr. John C. Hall has that story. We'll also hear from legislative analyst Matthew Albright, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, NBC News in Washington is reporting that an executive order signed by Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin goes into effect making mask wearing by students in public and private schools a parental choice that goes into effect today. Some Virginia school districts are vowing to defy the order. Also, a federal judge in Texas over the weekend blocked enforcement of the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for federal workers, leaning on last week's Supreme Court decision over the vaccine requirements for private companies. All of that about mandate madness. We have much news to report. We begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. I've often mentioned the Center for Medicare Advocacy here. They're an amazing Medicare beneficiary advocacy organization. Well, last week, they published a paper that is worth reading, entitled, The Role of AI-Powered Decision-Making Technology in Medicare Coverage Determinations. This article is actually written by their health policy intern, Lila Saxena, which makes it even more impressive. In it, she analyzes how tools like Interqual, MCG, and NaviHealth are used by payers to determine if coverage will be provided for hospital care, nursing home admission, home care services, and so on. Now, the article is not a criticism of the tools themselves, but points out their limitations, many of which the companies themselves have discussed. Most importantly, she does a great job analyzing the way these tools are misused by payers to deny covered care to patients. There's a link to the article in the resources tab on the left side of your screen. Next, another interesting paper was published last week, this one entitled, Addressing the Confusing Costs of Observation Hospitalizations. This one was written by several doctors, including my friends, Drs. Ann Sheehy, Charles Locke, and Bart Capone. In their article, they criticize the confusing way that hospital stays are statused and paid by payers. They're especially critical of the Medicare Advantage plans and their tactics, pointing out that the MA plans will approve inpatient admissions and then retrospectively deny those same admissions. They go on to point out the fact that we all know that the whole concept of observation is an artificial construct, and they call on CMS to either mandate that MA plans follow the two midnight rule or abolish the whole concept of observation and simply call every hospital patient an inpatient. Now, this article is paywalled, but the link to the site is in the resources tab. So if you can see that and find someone at your hospital that has access, you can read it. There's also a third link in the resources tab, and that leads you to the proposed Medicare Advantage rule for 2023. 
Now, I don't want you to read the whole rule itself. In fact, I didn't even read it. But you should open the link and click on the button labeled Submit a Formal Comment. And I want you to tell CMS exactly how you feel about the MA plan payers and all the roadblocks they put in place to getting patients the care they need in the arbitrary way they deny admissions and create their own criteria for admission to the hospital, transfer to a SNF, and their nearly universal refusal to approve inpatient rehab. CMS needs to hear this, not just from me, but from providers everywhere. That's the only way they're going to understand what you face every single day. Now, I've given you a lot to find in the resources tab. So go in there, open the links, but don't start reading now. Wait until after the show because there's lots more to follow. And one more thing, CMS has released an update to the manual provisions for the important message from Medicare that are effective in April. I've written a Rack Monitor update about it, and it should be published tomorrow. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. So it's a miracle. HHS has reduced the Medicare appeals backlog at the administrative judge level by 75%, which puts the department on track to clear the backlog by the end of 2022 fiscal year. The department had 426,594 appeals bottlenecked on backlog. An audit from 2016 could get heard by an ALJ in 2021. However, the movement has occurred. According to the latest status report, HHS has 86,000 pending appeals remaining at the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. In 2018, a federal judge ruled in favor of the American Hospital Association and its hospital plaintiffs and ordered HHS to eliminate the backlog of appeals by the end of fiscal year 2022 providing the department with a number of goals. According to the ruling, HHS had to reduce the backlog by 19% by the end of fiscal year 2019, 49% by the end of 2020, and 75% by the end of 2021. On another note, lately I've seen a lot of supposed audit results based on LCDs or policy manuals. This is unacceptable. The in Hendricks versus Division of Social Services, the court held that people eligible for Medicare Part B must apply and enroll, and that if the applicant fails to enroll, Medicaid pays no portion of the cost for medical services that would have been covered by Medicare Part B. As you know, Medicare Part B provides coverage for certain hospital outpatient services, physician services, and services not covered by Part A. Enrollment in Medicare Part B is generally not automatic and requires the patient to pay insurance premiums to enroll, after which the federal government pays most of the quote-unquote reasonable costs with patients paying the remaining costs on an annual deductible. 
Together, the Part B premiums and deductibles and coinsurance are generally referred to as Part B cost sharing. At your hospital or healthcare entity, do you have someone dedicated to properly enrolling consumers into Medicare Part B? Because if not, you may want to consider this as a financial investment. Thanks. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about, uh, well, let's say eight minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, and Dr. John K. Hall, who's standing by to report our lead story this morning, Mandate Madness. It's Monday, it's January the 24th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led, nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within the healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use. See the results of their latest physician advisor survey and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Uh, David, as I say every Monday morning, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's the risk of misunderstanding the No Surprises Act. As we've discussed in the past, the No Surprises Act is one of the more complicated pr- provisions I've worked on. The poor drafting makes it challenging to understand. But if you read it carefully, you can. Alas, many don't. A hospital told its physicians that the rules don't apply to ologists. Now, it's certainly true that the certain specialists can't ask for consent to balance bill. And the list includes many ologists, anesthesiologists, pathologists, radiologists, neonatologists, hospitalists. But it also includes intensivists and assistants at... Uh, an assistant at surgery, neither of which are ologists. And gastroenterologists and nephrologists aren't on the list covered. Moreover, it's not that the law doesn't apply to these ologists. They still have to worry about the good faith estimates. They're just not allowed to balance bill. The hospital's claim is both under and over-inclusive. It isn't just wrong. It's wrong on roids. Now, the most common question I'm getting relates to the requirement that hospitals and ASCs and any professional that's licensed in the healthcare space and takes patients to a hospital or an ASC provide patients with a disclosure form. And I want to repeat the last part because I think people fail to understand that if you're a clinic and you take patients to a hospital or an ASC, you have to give the disclosure to the patients who are going to be getting a service at a hospital or an ASC. People often wonder, how often do I need to give or to provide this disclosure notice? Do we really need to give it to the patient for every single visit? That seems like a lot of work. And I agree, it does seem like a lot of work, but I have good news. 
I don't believe it's necessary. This is a great example of where careful reading of the regulation becomes important. We're talking about 45 CFR 149.430. Now, remember that the word, I'm sorry, that the uh, No Surprises Act uses the word provider when it should use professional. So when I read this quote and you hear provider, think professional. The rule says that each healthcare provider, professional, and healthcare facility must make publicly available post on a public website, and provide to any individual who's a participant the information in the notice. Section D then indicates that the disclosure has to be provided no later than the date and time in which the provider or facility requests payment from the individual. Now, under plain English, once you've given the disclosure to the patient, the disclosure has been provided in perpetuity. If a child gets too close to the stove and you say, watch out, the stove is hot, and five minutes later they return to the stove, you'd say to the child, you've been warned. The prior warning doesn't magically disappear after 30 seconds or any other amount of time. A warning goes on and on. The regulation requires you to give the disclosure, and once you've given it, you can always say that the patient has the disclosure. Now, I will admit, I'm recommending that organizations opt to give patients an annual reminder. I can't point to anything in the regulation that suggests an annual notice is either required or sufficient. And I stand by my conclusion that giving the notice once in a lifetime is all that the regulation requires. But I feel that giving it annually goes above and beyond the wording in the regulations and provides an opportunity for you to say you're doing more than required in looking out for a patient's welfare. I don't think you have to do it, but it's probably not a crazy idea. Chuck, the bottom line is that if you were thinking the regulation can't require us to give the exact same notice every single time you see the patient, in the words of the legendary meatloaf, you took the words right out of my mouth. Back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, Chuck. On January 11th, NIH posted a significant funding opportunity for communities and healthcare organizations to address health disparities for individuals with multiple chronic conditions, MCCs. The goal of the initiative is attainment of optimal treatment and health outcomes to advance healthcare towards health equity. Listeners, you will want to search for PAR22-092. To find the direct link and details, application submissions open on February 17th and close on March 18th. The reviews for those applications and notification will go out in July, and projects are expected to start no earlier than September 22nd. This funding is imperative to address the emerging focus on health disparities, but also the growing research of individuals with MCCs impacted by varying levels of care because of their race, poverty level or geographic location. The number of people with MCCs continues to increase and currently represents 42% of the U.S. population age 65 and older. 
the highest number of adults with MCCs are those living in poverty. In addition, the prevalence of MCCs is highest for minority populations age 45 to 64. HHS is specifically looking for ways to address MCCs for impacted populations by targeting their top concerns, which include, includes suboptimal care coordination, the collaboration of primary and specialty care services, subspecialty referrals, patients' limited understanding of coexisting conditions, polypharmacy, and payment or reimbursement issues for clinicians and healthcare systems. They're hoping applications will include a design around chronic, the chronic care model, which emphasizes the importance of patient and healthcare team interactions to enhance patient self-management and healthcare provider decision support. This would be a great add-on project if your organization has a community needs assessment highlighting top issues in your area. If your health system already provides transitional care management, chronic care management, or has primary care medical home designation, you are already ahead of the game and can likely expand on existing services for your target population. HHS already encourages any organizations that are in value-based care models to apply so they could expand on existing programs that may not have had funding or resources originally. Here are some examples of programs that may be helpful in your community. I would consider projects that would help patients obtain health insurance if they're uninsured, cover out-of-pocket expenses such as vital medications that they may be having trouble affording, support for transportation to needed appointments, maybe getting integration with primary care and cardiology for the PTINR clinics, or send home a meal package for your patients diagnosed with malnutrition and having a significant hospitalization. The food in their fridge is likely bad by the time they discharge home. Finally, you could pull the data on your top DRGs with MCC Capture to look at the diagnoses that are having the greatest impact on your community. So my question for today's listeners is how many of you are interested in considering health disparity initiatives, whether through grants or in-house in your organization in 2022? Excited and willing to get involved, interested and willing to send an email, unsure where to begin and does not apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Tiffany. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. And as Tiffany said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, as David Glazer pointed out a few minutes ago, a number of provisions from the No Surprises Act took effect on January 1st of this year. Last fall, however, at least five lawsuits were filed against the law by healthcare provider groups. All of those lawsuits are centered on just one element of the No Surprises Act called the Qualifying Payment Amount, or QPA. The QPA is basically the median of the reimbursement rate that a specific payer pays for a service to its providers that are in network. It can also be a rate pulled from a database that more generally reflects a planned median in-network rate. Now, in its interim final rule on the No Surprises Act, published last 
fall, the administration adopted a policy in which an arbitrator is to presume that the QPA is the appropriate rate that out-of-network providers should be paid. In other words, the regulation says that an out-of-network claim that falls under the No Surprises Act should be paid in network rates. Now, providers can bring other considerations in to argue for a higher reimbursement. For instance, uh, patient's acuity, uh, provider's training or education, and other qualitative considerations. But the administration's current QPA policy is that those other qualitative factors are secondary to this QPA. Now, in these lawsuits, the providers are arguing that Congress did not intend for the QPA to be the de facto rate. One of the key lawsuits was filed by the American Medical Association in December, and listeners have probably seen that many provider organizations and companies have signed amicus briefs in support of the lawsuit. In the suit, the AMA requested that the court put a temporary hold on the QPA policy before the first week in March, at least until the court gets a chance to hear the case more fully. Now, generally, the court would only put a stay on the case if they believed that the provider groups had a case that might ultimately win. So we may know whether the AMA's case, and by our reflection, all of these cases, have any legs by March. Now, as we've said, all of these lawsuits are focused on the QPA policy, which really only affects claims that fall under the No Surprises Act balance billing prohibition. However, in a CMS open call in December, providers expressed much more concern with the No Surprises Act good faith estimate requirement that also went into effect on January 1st and which we've talked a lot about on this show. The good faith estimate requirement mandates that all providers, both facilities and office-based providers, in and out of network, even dentists, all providers provide uninsured and self-pay patients a good faith estimate of scheduled services one to three days before a healthcare appointment. Chuck, we see no lawsuits on the good faith estimate policy, but it certainly will be the most widespread and burdensome of the No Surprises Act requirements that providers will have to implement in the coming year. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew was the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Now is the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here is Tiffany Ferguson. Thanks, Chuck. So the question for our listeners were how many of you are interested in considering health disparity initiatives in 2022? Looks like people are still coming in with responses, but we've got about 12% that are excited and willing to get involved. 8% interested and willing to send an email. Good for you guys. And the majority, it looks like, is between does not apply or unsure where to begin at about 39%. And for those that are saying unsure where to begin, say the first part is always just starting to have the conversation with your colleagues and people around you. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much for your survey results. And coming up next, Mandate Madness. That's our lead story. And Dr. John K. Hall is standing by to report that story. This is Monitor Monday Standby. Be prepared for a full-scale resumption of audits targeting the non-compliant reporting of implantable medical device credits as well as outlier payments for outpatient device procedures. Every known auditing agency has indicated an intent to rev up provider scrutiny. 
And this definitely extends to reporting implantable medical device credits and managing patient accounts when such devices are billed. In short, medical device credits will once again become easy targets in all three major patient care settings, inpatient, outpatient, and ambulatory surgery centers. Learn how to protect your revenue and remain compliant during an upcoming webcast on implantable device credit reporting and outlier payments. The webcast is this Thursday, January 27th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now at the Rack Monitor Bookstore. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there's been a back and forth over the CMS vaccine mandate for a wide range of healthcare providers. After recent oral arguments, the Supreme Court has reinstated these CMS mandates. Here now with the very latest update is Monitor Monday's own Dr. John K. Hall. Dr. Hall is also an attorney, and he has some very practical recommendations to help ensure that your facility is in compliance. Good morning, Dr. Hall. Hey, this back and forth is really mandate madness, isn't it? Absolutely, Chuck, and it's not getting any easier. Uh, So during my December 6th segment, I noted that the Department of Health and Human Services had filed appeal notices in both the Eighth and the Fifth Circuits to quash the injunctions imposed by those courts. Unsurprisingly, these cases ended up in the Supreme Court, and the court, consisting of nine fully vaccinated justices, heard oral arguments on January 7th in both the Departments of Labor and Health and Human Services injunctions. On January 13th, the court issued decisions in both cases. The recordings, transcripts, and decisions are all available on the Supreme Court website, but I'll cover the highlights. In the case of the Department of Labor, the court found in a 6-3 decision against the government. This means that businesses with greater than 100 employees are not subject to a vaccinate or test requirement, at least for now. More important for our listeners is the CMS case. The court found in a 5-4 decision that the imposition of a vaccine mandate is within the scope of the secretary's authority, and here's the key part, as a condition of participation. As the court stated, we agree with the government that the secretary's rule falls within the authorities that Congress has conferred upon him. The court continues, though, and says Congress has authorized the secretary to impose conditions on the receipt of Medicaid and Medicare funds that the secretary finds necessary in the interest of the health and safety of individuals who are furnished services. Those are quotes from this, from the uh, holding. This holding is crucial because it may be an insurmountable obstacle for future challenges to vaccination requirements. So we may just have to learn to live with these. The court's decision answered, at least temporarily, the question of the ability of the secretary to impose this mandate everywhere except Texas. And that's because Texas had separately filed suit. But on January 19th, a federal judge in Texas dismissed the case as well. Within one day of the decision, CMS issued guidance to surveyors. So where exactly does that leave us now? Well, as of today, January 24th, the vaccine mandate is in effect for all hospitals in every state with varying degrees, with varying dates for compliance. The decision does not change the original compliance dates for the states that weren't included in the Supreme Court hearing. For the states covered by the January 13th decision, the relevant dates are February 14th and March 15th, and that's according to a joint commission statement. For Texas, the dates are likely to be February 19th and March 20th. The Joint Commission has already announced that on January 27th, just three days from now, it will begin assessing compliance as a component of its survey process. 100% compliance with the regulation is required. 
Thus, employees must be vaccinated or covered by a recognized exemption. And there are only two good faith efforts Joint Commission will consider in determining the level of deficiency. The first is limited access to vaccine, and the second is evidence, documented evidence, of aggressive steps to have all staff vaccinated. The Joint Commission will also expect very specific documentation related to vaccination. Part of that includes a list of all staff and vaccination status, vaccination rates, excluding, of course, exempted staff, and the methods that you're using to track vaccinations and exemptions. And the last is policies for vaccination. This is not going to get any less complicated, and the stakes are extremely high for hospitals since the penalty is exclusion from the program. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. John K. Hall. That was attorney and physician, Dr. John K. Hall. Dr. Hall is a member of the Rack Monitor Editorial Board. David, we've got a couple of minutes, so let's uh, answer a couple of those questions, okay? You bet. Dr. Hirsch, the first one's for you. Uh, I think Elaine speaks for many when she says, hey, what's the place where we can comment on the Medicare Advantage plans and not upholding the MCR guidelines? Well, it should be on the left side of your screen, an orange tab that says Dr. Hirsch Resources. I'll tell you, the, the law is CMS 4192P. So you can also Google that and find the link to submit your comment. Thanks, Ron. Matthew, um, I don't know if this one's for you or me, really, you go either way, but I'll ask you, hey, if the good faith, this is from Jennifer, if the good faith estimate is, uh, do you only have to do it if it's scheduled three or more days in ahead? What if the patient is scheduled less than three days out? That's a great point by Jennifer. That's actually, uh, I wouldn't call it a loophole, but a loophole in the law, right, where uh, this requirement is only triggered, a good faith estimate is only triggered if it's um, beyond uh, three days where uh, where uh, an appointment is scheduled. So good pointing it out. And, and I'll look to you, David, to make sure you concur. That's what. No, I totally concur. Was. And there, I mean, there's the additional thing. If a patient asks for an estimate, even with no scheduled service, you still need it, but you get three. So basically you don't have to do it if it's less than three days out or if the service is not schedulable. So Technically, it wouldn't apply to things that are not schedulable. And I think that is all we've got time for, Chuck, so I will turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much, and thank you all for your questions. And that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Dr. John K. Hall, who reported our lead story this morning. And one more thing before you go... You can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.